I'm Kent Garrett. This podcast is about being black in America for almost 80 years, as seen through the eyes of the last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us. We were in the class of 1963. We have seen a lot, and we have been through a lot, and we have a lot to say. With me on this first episode are four of my classmates. First, we have Fred Easter. How you doing, Fred? I'm doing fine. For a man of my age and condition, <laughs> where where are you now? Where are you? Uh, you're. I I live in Prior Lake, Minnesota, which uh-huh. is a, maybe a third ring suburb south and west of downtown Minneapolis. Uh-huh. Um, I'm retired, but I'm hoping to get. Uh, I'm involved with a bunch of people that are going to raise fish and vegetables indoors and found. Um, supermarkets in food deserts around the country. And once this pandemic lets us go, we'll get started working. But the the um, investment money, I'm told, is all um, committed. And so it's a question of when we can travel back and forth safely and that sort of stuff. All right. So we have uh, Jerry Secundi. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing just fine. Thank you. So I live in Pasadena, California, which is about 10 miles east of Los Angeles. And I was working up until about a year ago. So uh, I, I, my, my wife wanted me to continue working. In fact, I think she's a little disappointed that I'm not working at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So How about I'm, you? Uh, uh, she doesn't make you sit outside the house, right? <laughs> well, I, I've never been home this month, especially with the quarantine. And, um, I've always traveled at least 50% of the time. And now, as she says, I intrude. I said, what do you mean I intrude? She says, you're here. Yes, I am here. (laughs) You guys love me, and I love her. And we have uh, George. How are you, George Jones? I'm doing well, Kent. Thank you. I'm in Atlanta Uh and uh, trying to stay out of trouble. Yeah. (laughs) And Woodford, John Woodford. Oh, fine. I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, uh, yep, I'm my, I've been retired for a while. I had a period of bliss when my wife wasn't retired. She can't hear you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> for about five or six years, I was the only one retired. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, but now I'm monitored, which probably is a good thing. <laughs> Well, let me, let me ask you guys right right off the top, how do you feel? I mean, where do you think we're at in terms of the whole struggle of civil rights and what's going on? I mean, is, are we at a crossroads or what's your sense of that? We have gone, it seems to me that we have gone further than ever before. Mm-hmm. Many, many white people seem to have seen their privilege in ways they didn't before. Um, And fewer of them uh, feel that their role is to monitor us and to uplift us by helping us be more like them. Um, So I'm I'm encouraged. There are clearly um, too many Trump supporters who would just as soon kneel on our necks, but we'll see how that goes. Right. Well, just jump in. What do you guys feel, uh, George? Or how do you? What do you think? 
You're in the hot spot, Atlanta. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I too am optimistic, Kent, but I, I still feel that we have a long way to go. And one of the questions that you sent out to us in preparation for this conversation was, what do we think about the monuments? My feeling is, and I may be in a minority, is that they should stay. And the reason they should stay is to remind us that we still have a long way to go. That's interesting. That's How do you point. feel about that, Jerry? Well, it is interesting. I have a good friend who for years was the president of the Museum of the Confederacy. And I must admit, I was somewhat skeptical as to that museum, but I visited it a number of times. It was a good historical uh, comeuppance, if you like, as to what really went on. So I don't think we should be destroying the monuments, but I wouldn't mind seeing them moved to museums is what it amounts to. Uh, it does make me uh, upset when I see some of the monuments and remember exactly what they stand for uh, over the years. So, but tearing them down right now, frankly, is just making the Trump supporters uh, feel more energized. And that makes me very, very nervous about the coming election. <laughs> John, where are you at? Yeah, I uh, tend to agree with those who say that this sort of a this symbol, symbolic action that not only can lead nowhere, but it absorbs a lot of energy and a lot of fuss. It, and it gets at the end of it all, it winds up being a, a really a, an empty gesture, makes someone happy or doesn't make them happy. I don't know. I think it's just a, a misplaced energy. I, I would rather see people address the history behind those figures. Now, I don't mind if they take away the names of bases, of our military bases, any of those named after uh, traitors and, um, and uh, white supremacists. They shouldn't, our national military bases shouldn't be named after those people. But these towns that had these figures in them, I would just put up plaques uh, giving their full history and let people learn from that rather than tearing down, are they going to start, it gets to be a puritanical uh, kind of action where the implication is that anybody who's left standing is somehow some kind of pure and vetted person who is, you know, a paragon. You find something wrong with them that they did, and then you have to take them down. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really nothing that but I mean, let me let me ask you this, though, like when I grew up in the city, as, as did Fred and like part of uh, growing up and in, in grammar school and all that is that you took a class trip. And a lot of times the class trip was to the American Museum of Natural History. And I'm not sure how young I was, but I saw that statue of Roosevelt, you know, with the Indian on the standing next to him and the black guy, the slave standing next to him. And I don't know. I, you know, what kind of effect that had on me, but it can't be positive in the sense that looking at that when you're 10 years old and we would go every year to the, uh, to see the statue. So uh, it had to have some negative effect on me, I would think. Yeah, maybe, maybe it may help you become a critical thinker later on, because later on you can see that maybe you, maybe we were being tricked or maybe we were not being informed properly. So it's up to us then to find out about these people. I mean, once you look at, Teddy Roosevelt's own writings and see him exalting the white race and all that kind of stuff. Well, then you learn about these people. And so you learn what they were really, you know, you learn what they were like. 
it's it's to our benefit to learn what they're they're like. So there's a statue of them. My, my concern, and is it might go too far. I think it is going too far. I mean, there are movements now to tear down any statue to George Washington or Thomas Jefferson because they were slave owners. Are we going to tear down the Washington Monument? Are we going to tear down the the monument to Jefferson on uh, in Washington D.C.? Uh, you know, they are they're men of their times is what it amounts to. So I think explanations and plaques to explain would be better than just tearing them down. There, there are moves underway apparently to tear down any statues of Christopher Columbus. So I presume, I don't know this to be the fact, but I presume that Columbus, Ohio is probably named after Christopher Columbus. Do we mm -hmm. go around right. renaming every city in the country that's, called, that's named after Columbus? Mm -hmm. Years ago, I worked at Berkeley and um, in the Lawrence Hall of Science, which was an interactive kids' museum, kind of. And they would, it was a staff meeting, and all of us were trying to decide what kind of exhibits to put up to celebrate Columbus Day. And I raised my hand and said, Columbus was lost. <laughs> and <laughs> they looked at me kind of like I was crazy. And then went right on with the meeting. Yeah. Right, right. I have long argued that we talk in Minnesota a lot about the achievement gap. And I think that the real gap is between what white people think and what they have learned and <laughs> reality. What do you mean by that? Well, um, white folks don't know who, who separated plasma from whole blood. They don't know when they say the real McCoy that that was about an inventor, Elijah McCoy. Mm -hmm. um, they, there's a lot they don't know. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has just done a segment for the History Channel about black heroes of the revolution. They don't, Perry Miller doesn't know anything about that. That doesn't come up in his course, mm -hmm. or didn't when I was there. Um, and so there's a lot about American history that is sort of was told by the winners. Right. Well, that's how historically it happens. The winners write the history. Right. You know, but it's, it's, it means they're missing their history. Yes. You know, you mentioned uh, separating plasma, for example. I grew up in the summer at Highland Beach. I grew up with the Drew children. So Charles Drew, we knew very well is what it amounted to. We knew his family. His oldest daughter was called Bibi. And we knew BB stood for blood bank. And that's how she got her name. So I grew up knowing that. But then talking to my white friends, they looked at me like, you mean it was a black man that did this? Yes, it was a black man that did this. And right. you're damn lucky because you're alive because of it. Right. In the first history books that I got coming up through the New York City public school system, George Washington Carver was the only black person you saw a picture of. Um, and he discovered 207 uses for a peanut or something. I don't know. I think if they're going to keep the statues, and I think John makes a, a telling point, they at least sort of enshrine Colin Kaepernick in the Hall of Fame immediately. <laughs> you think so, really? Yeah. <laughs> We've had these books about black inventors and black achievement and black this and that for quite, you know, for decades, many decades that we've been able to inform ourselves about such things. Um, 
often I see on programs like Jeopardy, I see a lot of white people know the answers to the black history questions. But we still got the same socioeconomic problems despite this knowledge. So a lot of this knowledge and fact finding, you know, it doesn't lead to anything. There's no rubber hitting the road on a lot of it. I mean, there are books like that book, uh, Lies My Lies My Teacher Told Me by James. Right, right, right. All of the, and there's that other historian, uh, I can't remember his name. Anyway, they've got books to expose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, are you saying that that stuff's not that important? I mean, no, the cultural stuff? Important. I'm saying it just goes so far. Obviously, yeah. there's a gap. It is, it's just knowledge. But when it gets down to um, what the country's spending its money on, mm-hmm. you know, $740 billion for the military, and I find that uh, Bernie Sanders and some of those people, to me, are the only ones that are raising practical the practical thing is you can't have $740 billion going into the military and have all this spending and fix all these other things that we're talking about fixing. The two things right. happen. Money has to, and, and same with the funding of the police is out of that. So I'm not for closing down police departments. I'm not for ending the military, but they're getting too much of the money, too much of the wealth. And unless the Democrats and others say that they have to, get this money out of there, then I don't think anything's going to change because there won't be any money for whether you call it reparations or a reformist budget. Or uh-huh, uh-huh, There's no money. Uh-huh. So it's got to be done. It's got to be faced up to. There was a piece in the Minneapolis Tribune today that said tanks for police, garbage bags for healthcare workers. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Wow. You know, I, I think you make an excellent point there. And I'm sorry that they are using the, the term of defund the police department. What we're really saying is let's direct some of the funding that we're giving to the police department into social services, things that would prevent some of the crime. Instead right. of buying military grade equipment for the police department, maybe we should be using some of that money for mental health, for homeless shelters, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be a much better way to express it than, quote, defund the police. Because, again, here's you can get a lot of white people with their backs up. What do you mean? You're going to do away with the police department? In Minneapolis, um, I guess, uh, just said that they were going to abolish the police department. What that means, I don't know at this point in time. But we are going to need police. So. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I don't know if you guys know the name Mark Claxton. He is a yeah. black former police officer who has been for years calling for the demilitarization of the police. Oh, really? Right. Where is he from? Right. New York. Uh-huh. I think from right. Matt, he, yeah, he He's was on MSNBC a lot. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly Black Lives Matter in the context of a white policeman putting his neck on, putting his knee on the neck of, a, of, of an un, unarmed Black man and choking him to death. But what about the Black Lives Matter in terms of the kids that you're talking about now who are not being educated properly? And, right. and, and, and what do we do about them? You know, mm. my daughter and, and Kent, you, you, um, John, you know, and Kent, she's been on your show. Right. Her, her area of expertise is the, is the Voting Rights Act and, Act. and so I've learned a lot of things about segregation generally through my interactions with her. 
And one of the things that I learned relatively recently is that there are jurisdictions, school jurisdictions in the state of Mississippi, and probably in other Southern states as well, that have been under desegregation orders since 1965. Wow, and they haven't done it. And they haven't done it. You know, I grew up in Washington, DC, which was very definitely a Southern city. It was yeah. overwhelmingly black, 75, 80% of the populace was black. We had 17 white high schools and one black high school, Dunbar, that was it. And if you were lucky enough to get into Dunbar, you could get a pretty darn good education, mm-hmm. but you couldn't go to the other 17 white high schools is what it amounted to. And if you were a black student and didn't get into Dunbar, you basically went to Phelps, which was a vocational school. And that's what you were told. You know, you just weren't smart enough to do anything else except learn a vocation, that's what it amounted to. Mm. And for a very short period of time, um, we did have integration, you know, when Brown versus the board came down. But the white flight was so rapid that those 17 white high schools became black high schools very, very quickly is what it amounted to. And the educational standards went down, period. And we still have a culture, regretfully, with a lot of the black students who look at those students that are trying to study, who are trying to get ahead, saying, hey, you're acting white. Why are you doing that? You know, you shouldn't be reading that crap. So that's something we need to overcome. Well, how do you, how do you feel then about Obama? I mean, do you feel, what is his legacy? I mean, do you feel that uh, he didn't, he was not, uh, he, he, he didn't fix any of this, or what, how, how do you feel he, he fits into it? I mean, I was pretty optimistic when he became president, and I thought we were on the way, not, not to a you know, non-racial society, but at least to, uh, wouldn't get to this. Well, I think the limitations of what he did, uh, I'm, I was never a great admirer of his, because I knew the people in Illinois that he kind of, was selected to walk over who were more black activist type people that he mm-hmm. planted and got funded to knock out of the way, but um, by the Democratic Party um, Central Committee types. But anyway, but still, his uh, failures do expose the systemic nature of the problems because you can have him up there, but you see, you can have him up there, and he had good intentions and right. a lot of pronouncements, mm-hmm. but you can see there's something happening in the country that just having a, a figure like that can't deal with. I, I link it to the, the Baki case and also the, uh, the, um, who's the, the Attorney General uh, Holder case, one in education where they knocked out affirmative action. Mm-hmm. So you have the big Supreme Court essentially says you can't have affirmative action uh, through the Baki, it's all the wording, but that's essentially what you can't have. You have to show you as an individual showed that they were, they wanted to be, uh, they wanted to stop you. It can't be a class. It can't be racism out of it. And then with a holder, you get rid of the voting rights. So you have the highest legal structure in the land subverting the opportunities uh, for justice. And that's where the country is. And we've got that court there and it's worse now than it was then. Yeah, yeah. You can't have, you got to have an affirmative, you have to have something like affirmative action if you're going to deal with the problems. Yeah. You got to have voting rights protection to have a democracy and to have representative government. And we've undercut both of them. Instead of just having affirmative action where people get 150 points on their SAT scores because they're black, 
what we ought to, I think, do is value diverse classes. I bring something to a class that a white guy does not, right. to a group of people studying. Um, and that's something that we don't seem to be willing to value in the education of white folks. Well, I'm for black people to be able to have a chance to achieve what their potential is to achieve by having the right kind of school systems. It will take a while because it's such a, a mess now in the poorer neighborhoods, poorer communities, that uh, the people have an anvil on their backs even trying to get up and, and get an education. So I don't want to tell the people that the black people are incapable of anything. They're capable of anything. They just have to have the conditions. I want the conditions to be there. And Bingo. It takes higher paid teachers, smaller classrooms. Um, that's the kind of right. remediation that I think needs to take place. In my opinion, one of the reasons Obama was unable to do more than he did was because he lost the Congress. And the interesting thing is, is, is when you look at the reason why he lost the Congress, and that is, at least in part, in 2014 and to, 2010 and 2014, both of those elections, 10 million fewer people voted than mm. voted in the presidential right, election. Right, right. And mm. most of those were Democrats. Million? 10 million. 10 million? 10 million fewer people voted in 2010 yes. and 2014 than, vote, than voted in 2008 and 2016. Wow, wow. wow. If you everything had been won, a lot of people. Yes, that's right. Oh, boy. So that I think is the, the fear that I have is that the combination of voter suppression, perhaps some level of indifference, although there shouldn't be any, right. will, have an, will have a negative impact in 2020 and not let us get those assholes out of the White House mm -hmm. and the Congress here. We're not just dealing with, um, with voter suppression. We're also dealing with the COVID-19, which I call the abortion of the elderly and the brown-skinned. Mm. Mm. Because we are dying in disproportionate numbers. Oh, right, yes. right, yes. And President Trump is talking about other stuff. He couldn't, I think instead of mismanaging it, he's managing it to the actual results that he wants to get. I mean, you think he's 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 actually happy that blacks are disproportionately. Yes, yes. I think yeah. he's doing things to make that happen. It yeah. never occurred to him to put the governors of the southern states in control of the wall as it goes through their state. Mm -hmm. But they're each of them now fighting each other and the federal government for seven ventilators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Jerry, how do you feel about Obama? I think he was a wonderful, a great orator. I don't think he was a great politician. He was not an LBJ. He didn't know how to work the system, and he didn't listen to some advice that was given to him, saying, what do you really want to accomplish? So uh, I was incredibly proud. My mother was in tears that we actually had a black man in the White House and of course, we all had such great hopes, but he just wasn't the politician that I thought he was going to be is what it amounted to. And there were limited things that he could do. He knew that being the first black person there, he wasn't gonna be able to 
really push civil rights at that point in time. Uh, right. Do that. Uh, uh, but I wish he had been able to do more. Uh, and I'm a, maybe I'm just the eternal optimist, but at this point in time, and uh, go back to what you said at the beginning, Kent, when we were saying, are we more hopeful now? When I look at the demonstrations and the overwhelmingly white people that are coming out to protest, that is so remarkably different than the 1960s when we were going out to protest. Right. Now, I think I told you before, when I was on the March of Washington in 1963 for Jobs and Freedom, it was overwhelmingly black. Well, that's not the case right now. So if we can keep up that momentum and not, frankly, turn people off by defunding all the police departments, tearing down all the monuments, et cetera, you know, if we can be a little bit more rational in, in the way in which we're going, I think we've got a chance. Well, let me ask you guys now about, about Harvard. Would you do it again? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, because where else, where else would I go? I mean, it well. was better for me or different? For me. Does that does that mean you didn't get admitted to Yale, John? <laughs> I was never, I was, for some reason, I was never interested in Yale. <laughs> I, mean, I have often thought that it might have been better for me to go to Morehouse than Harvard. And based upon what she has told me, I would say that you were, would not have been better off going there. Is that right? Okay. Uh, a lot of the black schools had some, still had some excellent faculty in certain fields, some of them. It's, it's not the academics that's the problem, John, it's the culture. Yeah. Culture? Well, yeah. What sense? Well, let me give you a specific example. My daughter's a political scientist and she taught, uh, uh, teaches courses obviously in, in law and politics and that right. sort of race and politics. Last, it's been about a year ago now, she was teaching a course in which as you might imagine, the number of the students, there was a, there were, the, 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 the level of performance was varied. And, enough, and several students actually failed the course. And at least two or three of them turned out to be seniors. Mm -hmm. Based with the, given that failure, they would not have graduated. Without any consultation with my daughter, the higher level of the administration at the school changed those students' grades so they could graduate. Wow. Wow. Oh, man. Why? I mean, what's the... Because the philosophy was, Jerry, the philosophy, according to my daughter, was what's important is that these kids come here and graduate. Mm -hmm. It's what they learn is not important. Yeah. Which is not to say, which is not to say, as, as, as I think Freddie or, or, or John pointed out, they're really good people mm -hmm. teaching at Morehouse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the educational philosophy is to get them in and get them out. Get them out? Wow. You know, that goes right along with grade inflation. I'm sure all of you were all straight A students at Harvard. Yeah, right. Uh, not me. Not <laughs> me, man. Woo. Yeah, right. Everyone now seems to get A's is what it amounted to. If you remember what we had groups like group three or whatever it was. What yeah, right, right. Student, you could make the dean's list, et cetera. But it's, it's that same pressure is what it amounts to that Give them all A's and B's so they can get into a grad school is what it amounted to. You know, right. Everybody graduates cum laude or magna cum laude now. Yeah, yeah. It, I have interviewed <laughs> prospective freshmen for the Minnesota Harvard Club. And it seems like it's hard to find a kid with an SAT score as low as 799. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what does that mean? The kid's smart, or what is it? What are you talking about? Well, the SAT is inflating numbers too. Yeah. Well, I they think they just started. Stop. They're going to stop using those as a criteria. Mm-hmm. Three, four, five years ago, they changed the scoring system so that so that what used to be a five hundred is now a seven hundred or something like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, listen. Let me ask you this: When did you guys? When did you guys think you were first realized that you were smart? <laughs> That, that was tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Freddie. I was about to say, I, I still haven't realized that, Ken. <laughs> well, smart or not, that is it for this first edition of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. Join us next time, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.